0: If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, would you open up to Genesis chapter 8? We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 19. The title for our lesson this morning is The Ark on Ararat. That's what we're going to be looking at this morning. As a matter of fact, God's timing. Waiting on God's timing. The 40 days and 40 nights of non-stop torrential downpour, along with the constant shaking of the world from earthquakes and all sorts of volcanic eruptions accompanied by all kinds of strange and eerie sounds and sensations, must have been very terrifying, to say the least, to the eight inhabitants of Noah's Ark. I mean, can you imagine being in that ark and all that was going on around outside of them? Their faith in God's promised protection from his own wrath against the sinfulness of that pre-flood world would have been put to the test as they tossed and turned in the raging tempest of that global flood which destroyed all living flesh and all vegetation from off the face of the earth. Furthermore, during the the entire 150 years, or I mean days, excuse me, since the flood had begun, which is where we're going to pick up our study this morning in Genesis chapter 8. During those 150 days, Noah had not heard from God. When was the last time Noah heard from God? When he told him to enter into the ark, and then, of course, seven days later, he closed the door, but we don't have any word of communication from God. He just shut the door. Well, in this lesson, which, as I said, is entitled The Ark on Ararat, We are going to learn once again of the incredible faith of the man named Noah, as is going to be evidenced this time by his great patience in waiting to hear from God about the proper time to exit the ark, to get out of the ark. And more importantly, we are also going to learn of the faithfulness of God himself in keeping his word and in remembering those who belong to him. So our outline is made up of five parts. We'll look at the remembrance of God, the recession of the waters, the rest of the ark, the restraint of Noah, and the replenishment of the earth. And let's begin then by looking at Genesis 8, 1, just the first part of that verse, the remembrance of God, where it says, And God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. That's all I'm going to read right now. Even though it took... Uh, the water vapor canopy, which surrounded the pre-flood world, 40 days and 40 nights to completely deplete itself. And along with the fountains of the waters, you know, which broke up from the great deep below the Earth's surface, even though it took both of those waters 40 days to to fill the earth to the point where there was the water was 22 feet above the mountaintops remember that so that the boat could pass over and not get destroyed even though that took only 40 days and 40 nights yet we found out that the aftermath of the storm continued for another 110 days and the highest level of the water which was 22 feet over the mountaintops prevailed at that height for another 110 days although no more new water was being added to the flood height yet we know that the hydrological cycle of our present world must have begun to operate by then you know after the water vapor canopy dissolved so water which was evaporating off of the mighty flood waters would have gone up into the atmosphere and formed clouds, which then would have become heavy very quickly because the whole world was nothing but water. So can you imagine the amount of of water vapor that was going up to form clouds? So those clouds would have gotten very heavy and again would have precipitated water back down to the earth. Because the entire world was nothing but water, the rainfall was probably almost continuous, even though, you know, the downpour, the heavy, heavy downpour, which created that height of 22 feet over the mountaintops only took 40 days and 40 nights. Yet after that, what I'm trying to say is that it would have kept raining, not the torrential downpour, but still it would have rained like we know rain today because the water would have evaporated, made clouds, and then precipitated it back. And so — and there was nowhere for the water of the Earth to go. There was nowhere for it to go. So it would have stayed at the same level with the new rain system of evaporation and clouds And precipitation in effect so the only way that the water would have ever receded would have been if God once again intervened as he had done back on the third day of the creation week remember when he back on the third day he pulled the waters of the earth apart so that there would be dry land he separated the waters from the from the dry land that was on the third day of the creation week now if we can attempt to imagine Just being Noah in his situation at that time, we will readily realize that once again his faith in God was put to the test. The great storm which had created the flood had ended 110 days earlier. And still there was absolutely no evidence that anything was changing outside. The water level was still maintained. They yet prevailed upon the earth, and the earth, I mean, the ark was still tossed about on a shoreless sea. So Noah and his family and the, all the pairs and the sevens of animals which were with him on the ark were still all cooped up inside of that boat. There had been no word from God at all since the day a week before the flood when they were divinely invited to enter into the ark. So, you know, that was that had been a total of 157 days beforehand. So for 157 days, they have not heard from God. And they knew that their food supply would not last forever, especially if all the animals began to emerge from their probable state of hibernation. So Noah and his family may well have wondered at times, you know, if the water was ever going to recede or if their experience was ever going to end or would they just simply go on endlessly until they all perished inside the ark where was god they might have wondered had he forgotten about their fate uh had he um simply you know if he was a god like a lot of the other religions invent he would be you know rather apathetic about what was going on down there in that one lone vessel with just eight inhabitants in it You know, they might have wondered if if he had forgotten about them, if he had abandoned them, or forsaken them. And I wonder if some of us ever feel that way. I know I have at times. Do you ever feel like maybe uh, God has forgotten about you? Do you feel like perhaps at times he has abandoned you? Or just completely forgotten about you, you know, maybe he's so busy taking care of some other problems in the world and other people and their needs, which might be greater than yours, that maybe he has just sort of forgotten about you as you're perhaps even in the midst of some storm. Well, if if that happens to be the situation, you know, sometimes we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray and we pray for years and we don't see God answering our prayer. But we can take comfort from this chapter, Genesis chapter 8, Because just as God had not forgotten Noah, neither has he forgotten you or me. Although it had been from Noah's perspective a long time, you know, our time is not like God's time. So for Noah, it had been a long time since God had acted in his life, yet God would indeed act again. In fact, we've already seen how Noah remained faithful and obedient to God before the flood, as he steadfastly built the ark and preached righteousness in the face of worldwide uh, ungodliness for a period of how many years? 120 years in which, as far as we know from the written record, he did not hear from God during those 120 years. So we can assume that during his 150 days on the ark, or 157 if you count that first week when he was in there before the flood started, Noah did what we should do when we are waiting for God to answer our prayers. What did he do? He just trusted, and he waited, and he prayed, and he went on in faithful obedience, even though he did not know how his situation was going to be resolved. He knew that God knew, and that was sufficient for him. And likewise, it should be sufficient for us, right? We know that God knows the plans he has for us, and so we should just trust in that. God works on his own time schedule, not ours. He had a plan for Noah, and he had a plan for the renewal of the world that he had created, just like he has a plan for you, which he will work out in his own time and in his own way. And I think it's significant. You know, lots of times God puts us through trials where we learn to wait so that we increase our our, faith, our patience in God. I mean, God had taught Noah through 120 years of waiting. So 150 days, or even he's going to be in the ark we'll see today, a total of um, 378 days altogether. That's nothing after 120 years, is it? That was a piece of cake. (laughs) So after 150 days from the time the flood began, Genesis 8 tells us that God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. Now, the Hebrew term remembered that you see there in verse 1 does not imply that God had forgotten Noah. God is God, and, of course, he cannot forget anything. Rather, it means that God was now going to act On behalf of Noah. And later on in Genesis, when we get to this one of these days, we're going to read that God remembered Abraham and therefore he sent Lot out of Sodom before he then destroyed that city. We'll also read that God remembered Rachel and opened her womb so that she could bear a son, and he remembered Hannah. And uh, open her womb, likewise. And God remembered his people when they were in their bondage in Egypt because he remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But the first time that we ever read the statement about God remembering is found right here in Genesis 8.1. And it is re- in regard to his remembrance of who? Of Noah and the others, including the animals who were in the ark with Noah. God was ready to start Noah and his family and all the animals on their journey to a new beginning in a new world. It had only taken, as I said before, 40 days to cover the earth completely with the judgment waters and to purge the old world, the pre-flood world of the judgment. I mean, of all the wickedness which men had brought upon it. But it would take over a year, would be over a year before the earth would then be ready for god's few redeemed children only eight of them to step out of the ark and then begin the process of repopulating the earth so god we find is never in a hurry god is not in a hurry except on one occasion who knows when god is in a hurry only one time when god is in a hurry and that's when it's on the tip of your tongues we have an example of it in the story of the prodigal son. The only time God is in a hurry is when he is running out to embrace a sinner who is coming home to him. Otherwise, he does everything on his own time schedule. (laughs) It was his will that the earth would be fully prepared for man's new beginning before Noah left the ark. You know, if Noah left the ark before everything was ready, Noah probably would have perished because the earth was still adjusting and all kinds of strange things were going on so we have to remember, again, I mean, I have to remind myself of this all the time because I want things now, don't you? (laughs) I mean, I pray for something and I expect it right now. But the Lord's timing is perfect, and we need to remember that. We should remember also that God always remembers. Can you remember that? Remember that God always remembers. He remembers his own, and it even says he remembers every living thing. You know, not even a sparrow can fall to the ground without his knowledge of it. So what he wants from us is to have enough faith to be patient as he carries us through the storms and the trials and the testings of this life. He has a purpose in all of it, and we just need to be patient and probably need to be learning the lessons that he is attempting to teach us while we're going through those trials. Now, in Genesis 8, verse, the rest of verse 1 all the way to verse 3, we are going to learn of three direct actions of God which must have uh, given evidence to Noah that God indeed had not forgotten nor forsaken him and his family. And these three actions caused the waters, which vastly covered the earth at that time, to begin to recede. So this is after 150 days after the flood started, 157 days after... After Noah has been in the ark, because, you know, you always have to add the extra seven because he was in the ark for that week before the flood started. So we're going to look at part two now, recession of the waters. And I'll read uh, verses one to three after it says, and God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the cattle that was with him in the ark. It says, and God made a wind to pass over the earth and the waters assuaged or receded. The fountains also of the deep and the windows of heaven were stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters returned from off the earth continually. And after the end of the hundred and fifty days, the waters were abated. So what we see here is that the first action of God in his remembrance of Noah and the other passengers of the ark was that he made a wind to pass over the earth. And the Hebrew word for wind, which is used in this verse, is ruach, R-U-A-C-H. It's the same word, if you want to go back to look at Genesis 1-2, same word used to speak of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, where it said in the earth was without form and void, darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God, ruach, moved across the face of the waters. So ruach can be translated as either wind... Or as spirit, depending on the context. Now, it may be that it was indeed here in Genesis 8, the Holy Spirit, who was, just as on that first day of creation, also involved in Genesis 8-1 in another work with water. It could be as the Holy Spirit, you know, had used his creative and his energizing power to originally give form to the earth and to remove the darkness from this water-covered planet, so too may he have been the member of the divine trinity who passed over the flood-filled earth to dispel the darkness of the storm clouds and to give form once more to the earth. Now, whether it was the Holy Spirit himself who passed over the earth or if it was an actual movement of wind, um, the result was, you know, it might have even been a combination. Maybe the Holy Spirit used uh, the movement of air, wind. But whatever, the result was that the waters of the earth finally began to recede. You know, with the removal of that protective water vapor canopy there were now extreme temperature differences at various locations on the earth remember everything before when the water vapor canopy was in place the whole world was a global tropic everything was warm even on the poles but now since that broke there was extreme differences especially between the equator and the poles the former worldwide even temperatures of that pre-flood world had Prevented any kind of windstorms. So, back in the pre flood days, they didn't have things such as uh, thunderstorms and tornadoes and cyclones and typhoons and hurricanes. Wouldn't that be nice? Not to have to worry about hurricane season and tornadoes. But they didn't have any of those. But on the 151st day after the flood, God brought about a great air movement which then initiated our current complex system of atmospheric circulations, you know, the system we have today. Dr. Henry Morris tells us that in its early phases, this air system would have probably been very violent, you know, especially since it was occurring over a planet which was completely covered in water. The winds over the waters would have brought on tremendous waves, And currents, you know, that's why it was so important for that arc to be so sturdy. So there have been all kinds of great big huge waves and currents, and it would have produced a great deal of water evaporation, especially over the equatorial regions, which would have been much warmer. Yet even with high winds and with a great deal of evaporation, this still would not account for anything less than a minor lowering of the water level. You know what we're talking we're trying to talk about how did the water level get down from where it was at twenty-two feet over the mountaintops. So the wind would have accounted for a little bit, but not very much. So in conjunction with the wind passing over the earth, God would have had to have rearranged the topography under the waters in order to create new areas for the water to occupy. So at some point during Noah's Uh, Days in the ark god would have had to have raised up whole continents and mountains you know just push them up from underneath the water and then to have deepened and widened the ocean basins you know for god it's no problem he could just push his thumb down in the soft ball of the earth and, and make a deep recession for an ocean and so the water would have a place to waters would have a place to fill and then as he did that he'd raise up the continents and mountains and, they, and the earth would just, you just if you could picture what would be a good thing, um, a ball of clay, and you just kind of squish it and make big holes. And, and he just totally rearranged the topography of the earth so that the water would have somewhere to go. And Psalm 104, do you want to turn over to Psalm 104 for a minute? <clears throat> it seems to be speaking of exactly this situation in this psalm. Psalm 104, look at verses 6 to 9. The first part of this psalm is talking about the creation, but this part here seems to be speaking about the flood. It says, Thou, coverest it, thou covered it, I can't say that word, meaning the earth, with the deep, or with the waters, as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. And that's exactly what happened at the flood, right? And then at thy rebuke, that's at God's rebuke, they fled. At the voice of thy thunder, they hasted away. The waters are hasting away. They go up by the mountains, they go down by the valleys, which literally means the mountains go up and the valleys go down, unto the place which thou hast founded for them. Thou hast set a bound that they may not pass over, that they turn not again to cover the earth." So that does sound like what we're talking about here with God raising up the mountains and lowering the ocean basins so that the water could recede down into them. But regardless of how God went about using the natural processes of wind and earth movement to bring about the post-flood topography that we know today so that the floodwaters would recede, begin to recede, the fact of the matter is that he did. You know, whether we know exactly how he did it or not doesn't really matter. The fact is that he did do it. A God who is powerful enough to have created the heavens and the earth in the first place, you know, this whole universe, and to have separated the earth's waters from the land on the third day of creation, as we learned last year he did, he was certainly powerful enough and wise enough to know how to distribute the waters of the flood so that dry land would once again appear now so the first action of god was that he sent this uh, wind to pass over the earth the second and third direct actions of god are found in verse two he caused it says he caused the fountains of the deep remember all those fountains underneath the ground that were breaking up and water was just spurting out of them he caused that to stop Um, he, he caused any further global eruptions to cease and it also says that he closed the windows of heaven so as not to create any further rainfall until the floodwaters could abate you know they could go down in fact it seems as though maybe in verse two it's implying that god supernaturally restrained any rain from falling even though the natural, you know, we've already talked about the natural process of evaporation and condensation and precipitation was in effect now, maybe he stopped that for a while so that the emerging continents could have a, a chance to begin to dry off. But as the waters returned from off the earth continually, much, and I think we saw this in, um, in one of those videos, much of our current topography that we're familiar with today would have been produced by the power of vast quantities of moving water, and that's what would have formed such things as the Grand Canyon, you know, and, and the the layers of strata that we find in the geologic column, and that's a study in itself. And again, I recommend if you really want to get into it, to get the book *The Genesis Flood* by Dr. John Whitcomb and by Dr. Henry Morris. They co-authored it, but I'm warning you, it's pretty heavy. It's it's uh, you almost have to be a geologist to go through it okay that's all i'm going to say about the recession of the waters let's go now to part three of our outline the rest of the ark and for this let's look at verse four it says "And the ark rested in the 17th month on the 17th day of the month upon the mountains of ararat as the waters began to recede the highest peaks of the mountain ranges began to show above the water level (coughs) and it was in uh one such mountain peak and that's where they would love to know where but we don't know exactly where Um, but it was in one mountain peak that the ark did come to rest from its five months labor of saving its inhabitants from god's wrath against sin and i say five months because the hebrew months were 30 days so it was 150 days before the ark came to rest on the mountains of ararat so that was five months now the word rest appears here now for only the second time in the scripture does anybody remember when the first time we read the word rest might have been right exactly when god rested back in genesis uh, 2 i think it was verses 2 and 3 it says and on the seventh day God ended his work which he had made, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had made. And then it uses the word rest again in verse 3. Since the ark serves as a prophetic picture of who? Of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's appropriate that the Bible mentions the fact that the ark rested after having completed its task of saving those who, who had entered into it for uh, for salvation from judgment you know christ also not only did he rest after the creation work but when else did he rest after his redemption work after his work on the cross um, because he is now seated where at the right hand of the throne of god he's not standing he's resting he's he's seated at the right hand of god on high, you know, just kind of like the ark was on high. <laughs> Christ is on high, resting. Of course, he has all kinds of work he's still involved in. You know that. Now, we've already mentioned back in lesson 25, because I had to jump the gun, I couldn't stand not to share that with you, but we mentioned how the ark came to rest, remember, on the very same day of the very same month that the Lord Jesus Christ resurrected from the dead and i think that is just absolutely fantastic it is definitely the ark is a picture of the lord jesus well we are told that the ark came to rest on the mountains plural of ararat that's a plural term and it probably speaks of the mountain range such as we saw in those videos which is located in um, present day the present day nation of what of turkey Now, although the scripture does not tell us which peak of the mountains of Ararat was the resting place, and this is an actual picture of um, greater Mount Ararat, it doesn't tell us which peak of the mountain range. You know, it's a whole big, huge mountain range. um, The highest peak in that mountain range is what is called greater Mount Ararat, which is approximately 17,000 feet in elevation. There is also another mountain peak, which is called Lesser Mount Ararat. Um, but as we saw in the video, there have been so many uh, ark sightings that have taken place, not in Lesser Mount Ararat, but in this one, Greater Mount Ararat. That it uh, certainly seems to give support to the fact that the ark landed somewhere on that very rugged and dangerous and extremely cold mountain range in modern day Turkey which is known as Greater Mount Ararat mm-hmm. saw in that video for those of you that missed it for one thing the um, the the base of the mountain alone covers 400 square miles so we're not talking about just a small mountain I mean this is a huge mountain and they they are confronted with all kinds of problems such as crevices and landslides and rock slides and wolves, remember the wolves on there, and um, the local people who are not always very friendly, lightning storms, remember the man got struck by lightning, and blizzards even during the warm season, and he even said that only once every 20 years does it really get warm enough to go to, for, for that arc to be seen, or at least the, the one that many people have, have claimed to see sticking out of a glacier or whatever it might be. And then there also is, of course, the problem of dealing with the Turkish government and getting, you know, permission to go over there and explore, which is not always very easy. And then there's the expense that's involved. It's very expensive to get an expedition team up (coughs) to go over there and try to look for it. And usually the permit's only good for two weeks, so if you don't find something in two weeks, you're out of there. Well, even though the Ark had finally come to rest, which must have brought— Great relief to Noah and his family. Yet, as we're going to see, it would still be another seven months before they would actually get off of the ark. Can you imagine? I mean, they finally came to rest. I'm sure they thought, oh, finally we're going to get off this boat. But it's going to be another seven months. So let's look at the next section of our outline to keep getting this out again. And this is entitled, The Restraint of Noah. As we consider his patience as the Lord God was renewing the earth to a condition which would be suitable for Noah and his family to once again live on dry land. So let's look at verses 5 to 14. It says, And the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. In the tenth month, on the first day of the month, were the tops of the mountains seen. And it came to pass at the end of forty days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent forth a raven which went forth to and fro until the waters were dried up from off the earth. Also he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters were abated from off the face of the ground. But the dove found no rest for the sole of her foot, and she returned unto him into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. Then he put forth his hand and took her and pulled her in unto him into the ark. And he stayed yet other seven days and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark and the dove came in to him in the evening and lo in her mouth was an olive leaf plucked off so Noah knew that the waters were abated from off the earth and he stayed yet other seven days and sent forth the dove which returned not again unto him anymore and it came to pass in the six hundredth and first year in the first month the first day of the month The waters were dried up from off the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. And in the second month, on the seventh and twentieth day of the month, was the earth dried. (coughs) After having already been in the ark now for a total of 157 days, Noah and his family would have probably been feeling rather confined. know and restless and perhaps even a little bit testy with one another that's a long time to be cooped up in a boat with uh, just your family (laughs) and uh, and all those animals and so uh, you remember too they were not as fortunate as the animals because the animals probably went into a state of hibernation but the eight human survivors had lived through every single moment of that holocaust they were not in a state of rest and hibernation they were awake so it would be normal for them to want to get out of the ark and to get their feet back on dry ground yet too at the same time they must have been very fearful um because they would have had no idea of what lay ahead for them you know what would their lives be like with no other people around at all can you imagine stepping forth out of a boat and there's nobody else on the whole world except you and your family what would the earth itself be like i mean you know they would heard all these strange noises and all that you they were tossed and turned and they had no idea what the earth would even be like and what should they expect from god might he not get angry with them you know if if they messed up if, if they sinned and and maybe he would just do the whole thing all over again furthermore remember Noah had not heard from heaven since God himself had shut them in the ark. So the family's excitement and desire to get out of the ark must have also been mixed with some anxiety and fear about all that would await them after they did leave the security of the ark. However... Regardless of what the inhabitants were experiencing inside the ark after 150 de- 57 days with no communication from God, Noah's faith and his patient restraint is seen in the seven, seven events which are stressed in these verses that I just read to you, verses 5 to 14. First of all, in verse 5, we learn that Noah, in faith, waited patiently in the ark after it came to rest there in those mountains of Ararat and after an additional two months and 14 days, which is a total of 74 days, which you see up here, after 74 days, then the tops, it says the tops of mountains could be seen. Now, these would be the tops of other nearby lower mountains. You know, not the one that they were resting in, but they'd see, start to see the tops of other mountains in the Ararat mountain range. Then, uh, secondly, in verse 6, Noah. Noah, in faith, waited patiently in the ark with his family and with all the animals for an additional 40 days. So, you know, he's been in the ark uh, seven days before the flood, then 40 days during the flood, then 110 days where the water is at 22 feet above the mountains, and on the 157th day the waters to begin to recede. But from that 157th day, it's another 74 days before he sees the, the tops of other mountains. And now we read in verse 6 that it's another 40 days, which is another month, and 10 days before he then opened the window of the ark, which he had made. And on that same day, it tells us he also sent out what? What kind of bird? Right. He sent out a raven. And this would have been, then, the 264th day after the flood had begun, the 271st day since Noah had been inside the ark. Now, the raven, being an unclean bird, did not return to the ark. However, the reason for this was not because the raven found land and vegetation making it possible for him to eat and live outside of the ark instead the reason that the raven did not return is because it was a carrion carrion eating bird it was a scavenger bird and so so it could satisfy itself on the floating carcasses you know of all the dead animals and even perhaps people So it says it went forth to and from until the waters were dried up from the earth. It might have even gone and sat on the roof of the ark, for all we know, and then went out and feasted, but it didn't come back to Noah. It didn't come back inside the ark. Uh, Third, Noah, in faith, waited an additional seven days. After he sent out the raven, he waited another seven days, and then he sent out what kind of bird this time? A dove to search for dry land. <clears throat> a dove, of course, you know, has a much different nature than a raven because doves are clean birds. They eat seeds and they eat vegetation and not the flesh of the dead, as ever since the fall um, the scav- do the, did the scavenger ravens. And by the way, this, this does show us that part of the, the effect of the curse after the fall of Adam and Eve was that um, animals started to eat meat. Otherwise, the raven would not have been able to it would have had to come back to the ark just as the dove did but at this point you know animals were eating one another and birds were scavengers such as the raven that was all part of the effect of the curse after the fall in fact we read about the dove that she wouldn't even put the soles of her feet on the floating carcasses she found no it said she found no place um, no rest for the sole of her foot so she grew weary flying about and finally had to do what had to come back to the ark and this told noah that there was no land with vegetation for the dove to get sustenance you know from which to live now a dove i don't know if you've ever noticed the the morning doves we have them um, periodically in our yard it is one bird in particular which stays very close to the ground you know whenever you see them they're always low down on the ground Uh, actually more than most birds. They stay close to the ground. So a dove was a very good choice for Noah to send because if she did not return, you see, then Noah would know that the water had receded enough to expose some of the low-lying land down below the mountains. And I thought it was very interesting to notice the tenderness of Noah in uh, his gesture of putting out his hand for that weary dove to alight and then pulling her back to safety inside the ark we read about that in um, verse 9 you know they often say that a man who is tender toward animals is is essentially a tender-hearted man that's not always true but in general it's true so i think noah was a very tender-hearted person now then fourth all right we're on the fourth thing here um after another seven days of patience first of all he sent out the raven right and he waited seven days and he sent out the dove And she came back after, and now he waits another seven days before he sends out the dove again. The second time, we read this in verse 10. So this would have been the 278th day since the beginning of the flood. And this time, however, when the dove returned, what did she come back with? Right, a fresh olive leaf in her mouth. So don't you know there must have been great rejoicing among Noah and his, the, the people in the ark, Noah and his family, because Noah knew now that the floodwaters were really beginning to abate from off of the earth because plants were beginning to grow as seeds and plant plantings, you know, which were buried beneath the surface of the earth, having been very well watered, <laughs> were now beginning to sprout forth under the sunlight of a brand new earth. So, you know, that takes care of the vegetation. All the seeds were down in there. Now with the sun coming out, a lot of those seeds were beginning to grow. So he knew that there was finally some vegetation down below because she came back with an olive leaf in her mouth. And that moment when the human occupants of the ark saw that dove returning with the olive leaf in her mouth must have brought great peace to that family and comfort to them because even today, what is... uh, the symbol of peace yeah a, a picture of a dove care well she doesn't have one here i got this one has it a dove carrying an olive branch in its mouth is it remain remains to this day as a sign of peace well fifth still extremely patient noah waited another seven days after the Uh, dove came back with that olive branch he waits another seven days and then for the third time he sends out the dove and that's in verse 12. This time however the dove does not return because there was and that's not an accurate picture is it what's wrong with that picture right the, the boat would not have been the boat was resting now on the mountains so It's interesting, when you look at children's picture books, you're going to find a lot of mistakes, and that's one of them. But it's a pretty picture, so I'm just showing it to you. But this time, the dove did not return because there was sufficient dried land down there below the mountaintops and enough new vegetation was sprouting from the earth for that dove to be able to survive apart from Noah and the food that he supplied in the ark. Now, it's likely that many of us, I put myself in this in Noah's shoes here, with this sign from God, you know, after all this time, let's see, he's been in the ark now a total of 292 days, and now the dove does not come back. I think I might have jumped the gun here, you know, and and not officially have waited to hear a word from God. I would have taken that as a sign, okay, it's safe to get out of the ark. But Noah didn't do that. Even though the, the, the bird didn't return and he knew that it could make it on its own, yet he waited to hear specifically from God. He waited in faith and in patience for God to direct his next step. And that's, I mean, I guess he really did learn a lot during those 120 years of uh, building the ark. Well, six, according to what we are then told in verse 13, we know it was an additional 29 days after having sent out the dove for the third time that noah removed the covering of the ark in order to look around and what he saw from up there on mount ararat was that the ground around the ark was dry and still however he did not become impatient and run ahead of god he did not run ahead of god he did not rush the will of god he had absolute faith that god would tell him the exact time when he and the animals could leave the ark. And it was now 314 days since the arrival of the flood and 321 days that he had been cooped up in that ark with his family and animals, and yet he still waited to hear from God, even when he saw with his own eyes that the ground was dry. Noah knew, you see, that God's perspective was uh, much higher And much wiser than his own perspective And he trusted that God knew When it would be the most appropriate time For him and his family and all the animals To disembark from their vessel of safety If Noah had acted apart from God If he hadn't been patient and waited totally on God And he had set forth from out of the ark Before he heard from God We can just bank on the fact That probably the earth would not have been ready to receive them And perhaps some of the animals and maybe even some of the people might have not survived. So it was critical, very critical, that they wait on God. It was critical that every single male and female survive, right? Because if if one didn't, then the whole uh, species of creature would not survive. So it was very critical that Noah wait on God. (laughs) Um, Now, the seventh event, which demonstrates the great faith and patience of Noah, is derived from figuring the time difference between verses 13 and 14. After removing the covering of the ark on the first day of the first month of his 601st year, that's Noah is now 601 years old. Remember, he was 600 when the flood started. Now he's 601. And uh, he looks around and he sees that the face of the ground is dry around him. That's in verse 13. We are then told that Noah was still on the ark on the 27th day of the second month, which was actually the day he finally heard from God to leave the ark. So this means that that Noah waited an additional 57 days after he saw that the face of the ground was dry. And that is really amazing. I mean, 57 days. We're not talking about 57 minutes. 57 days. He would not leave the ark until he heard from God. So 378 days after he had gone into the ark and 371 days after the flood had begun, Noah finally again heard from God. So I believe that Noah... Is one of the most dynamic examples in all the Bible of faith in God and patience in God. You know, we always talk about the patience of Job, right? But Noah, man, Noah's right up there with him, if not even surpassing him. Not only those 120 years of preaching against total peer pressure, the whole rest of the world was ungodly, and he was preaching to them and building the ark, and he hadn't heard from God in 120 years. And now uh, he waited all these days before he got out of the ark. So I think he really is one of our most dynamic examples of patience and faith. Noah trusted God's word so implicitly that time was not a factor. Listen to this time was not a factor in producing doubt in him. Do we allow time to produce doubt in us? We do. We have our little schedule, and when God doesn't meet our little schedule, then we start to doubt God. But time, was not, time should not be a factor, because with God, one day is, is a 1,000 years. He's outside of time. And we have to remember, if you get nothing else out of this lesson, remember we need to wait on God, his timing. So after having waited 120 years, um, waiting one year and 17 days, Noah was no big deal Um, and that's why maybe God will sometimes put us through testing periods so to stretch our faith and to stress stretch our patience in him you know if we've gone through one trial then the next trial that comes across we have learned to be patient and to just keep trusting trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding right in all thy ways acknowledge him and he will direct our paths So I just pray that the Lord would grant us to have the patience of Noah. Okay, let's look quickly at the last section of our outline, the replenishment of the earth. And for this, we'll look at verses 15 to 19. And God spake unto Noah, saying, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife and thy sons and thy sons' wives with thee. Bring forth with thee every living thing that is with thee of all flesh, both of fowl and of cattle and of every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth, that they may breed abundantly in the earth and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. And Noah went forth and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every fowl and whatsoever creepeth upon the earth after their kinds went forth out of the ark. So one whole year and 17 days after having heard God give the command, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, Noah now hears God say... Oh, this is just a joke. There. And you see what it says there? That's Mrs. Noah down below asking Mr. Noah, Do we take termites? <laughs> that could be dangerous. So one year, 17 days after hearing God say... Come into the ark, Noah now finally hears God say, Go forth of the ark, thou and thy wife, thy sons, thy sons wives with thee. God was the first one to enter into the ark. You know, he beckoned the others to enter. He said, Come thou. That gives us the impression that God is in the ark inviting them in. And now, in effect, he's it's like he's the last one to leave the ark because he's bidding them to go. So you, you see what I mean? You know, God is in there. He was in there with them the whole time, even though he was silent. If, if God was outside of the ark, he would have done exactly the opposite from what we read in the scripture. If he was outside, he would have said, go into the ark. But he didn't say, go into. He said, come into. And if he was outside, he would have said, come out of. But he didn't. He said, go forth from so what does that remind you of? The whole time they were in that trial, the storm on the sea, and God was there with them, but he was silent. It reminds me of Jesus when he was on the, the boat, you know, when the, with the disciples on the Sea of Galilee, and a storm arose, and they were, they, they were all upset. They thought they were going to perish. And they said, you know, they had to wake him up because he was, he was there with them, but he was silent, wasn't he? Same kind of a situation. Except they, didn't, they shouldn't have feared that they would perish when God was with them. Same thing here with Noah. God was with them. Even though he was silent, he was there with them during the whole thing, so the whole trial. So, of course, they would not perish. Remember back in chapter 6, verse 18, God had promised to save Noah and his wife and his three sons and his three sons' wives through the storm in the safety of the ark. And now he had shown himself faithful he had kept his promise because who do we see coming off the ark all eight members plus every living thing the, the scripture makes a point of telling us every living thing and it says every fowl, every creeping thing you know it just repeats it several times so that we know that everyone and every creature that went into the ark also came out of the ark not one single person or creature perished their salvation from judgment and destruction was complete. They did not need to fear stepping out onto the earth. There was not going to be any new volcano which would erupt and devour them. There would be no earthquake which would open up and, you know, and, and swallow them up. No new tidal wave was going to come up over Ararat and drown them. No new torrential downpour was going to again cause them to go scrambling back into the ark. Because God himself told them, in effect, the coast is clear. You can leave. You will be safe now. And the animals, having probably just awoken from their long time of rest, hibernation, in the ark, were also brought forth so that they could breed abundantly. This tells us that there was no reproduction going on inside the ark, which is another indication that they were in hibernation. He says, now breed abundantly and be fruitful and multiply upon the earth. You know, with no other animals in existence, the original pairs of creatures that came off that ark would have had no competition for food <clears throat> and and not so much danger initially of being eaten by their predators. So the animal population probably took off at a great rate. The various kinds of creatures probably then continued moving across the lands until they found an ecological area which was uh, perfectly suited for them, you know, for what type of creature they were. And if you look at where Ararat is, it's just beautiful, it's very centrally located so that the animals could um, move um, south into Africa, down this way, into Africa, and then they could go east over into Asia this way. They could go west into Europe, And they could go north up into, you know, the the Soviet Union, that area up there. And eventually, some of those animals would have found a land bridge, which is now the Bering Straits, which would have taken them over into the Americas. And others would have discovered another land bridge known as the Malaysian Straits, which perhaps even took them as far as Australia. Geologists know that such land bridges did exist, So there's no problem for them crossing oceans because um, during the Ice Age, which, by the way, I have in your notes more information about the Ice Age, but it wasn't the millions of years long as the evolutionists would tell us, but the Ice Age probably lasted a couple hundred to maybe a thousand years at the most, and it was an aftermath from the flood. But um, with the Ice Age, you see, there would have been a sizable lowering of the present level of the sea, due to so much water being frozen. So with a lower level, there were more land bridges. So the animals and the people had no problem getting across to uh, isolated continents. Now, speaking of land bridges, the Ark itself served as a bridge. It was a bridge which safely took its occupants from the old antediluvian world, you know, the pre-flood world, through the frightful judgment of the great cataclysm of the flood to the post-flood world, right? It was a bridge. It took the people inside of it from the old world to the new world. Now, the ark, as I've said over and over again, was a beautiful prophetic picture or a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. In many ways, we find this is true, including the fact that he, too, just as the ark, he also is a bridge. We could say that he's a bridge. Christ is the only one who bridges the otherwise impossible span between sinful man and a holy God, right? He said that he alone is the way to the Father. He's also a a bridge in the sense that uh, he's a ladder. You remember Jacob's dream of the ladder which went from earth to heaven and the angels were ascending and descending on it? He, Christ, is... The latter, he's the bridge from this world to the next world. The, you know, the new heavens and the new earth, which we will enjoy in the eternal state. And also he is a bridge in the fact that he's the only mediator between God and man. He is the only means of escape from God's judgment for sin. So how, therefore, shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation as is offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ?